Hey, in context, friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's handbook to prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com slash survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. The big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley, in context. We are delighted to have Dr. Craig Blomberg on the broadcast today. Craig is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. What a place to have to live, Craig. Goodness. He's been there since 1986. Craig earned degrees from Augustana College, Trinity Divinity School, Aberdeen, and Scotland. He has taught at Palm Beach Atlantic College, had spent an additional year at Cambridge as a research fellow with Tyndale House. He's been on translation committees for the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which now is the CSB. Craig is also the author, co-author, or co-editor of countless books, more than 80 articles and journals, and multi-author works. A recurring topic of interest in his writings is the historical reliability of the scripture. He has also covered issues of wealth and poverty, hermeneutics, etc. His books include Jesus and the Gospels, an introduction and survey in its second edition, Zondervan Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament, James, a handbook on the New Testament exegesis, on and on it goes. I've used many of your commentaries over the year, Craig. Appreciate your scholarship, your discipline, and putting it down in pen and paper. That's a lot. And on screen now in these days. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're doing the mobile ed courses with Logos, correct? I have done a couple of those, yeah, yes. Yeah. So we appreciate your contributions greatly. So let's talk about this letter called First Corinthians, uh, written by our apostle, Elder Statesman Paul. I tell our folks it's a book of correction, to keep that in mind. <laughs> How do you begin thinking about this letter? That's good. As long as we're on seas with Corinthians and corrections, right. uh, I think you can also talk about it as a church that was compromising with culture in way too many ways. Paul's tone in this book is interesting, and as I point out when I'm teaching it, Craig, his Christology in all of his opening chapters, the way we call chapters, always strikes me. And this one is, I think, in the 26th or the 31 verses, he uses... Christ, God, Father, the divine pronoun, multiple times in almost every verse. That's true. He begins in 118 through uh, 
at least two five to talk about the message of the gospel as being uh, God's foolishness that is nevertheless wiser than the world's wisdom in a bit of a perhaps a rhetorical overstatement. Nevertheless, in 2.2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And with that kind of focus, you're going to mention Christ a lot. <laughs> yeah. And Christ as being sent by God the Father a lot as well. When you read this first, primarily the first chapter, you walk away with this statement. So he's correcting them. They've been compromised by the culture, as we've said. What do you take away in this first chapter? What foundation is he trying to lay before he starts addressing some of the particular issues? I think, and this is debated, that the divisions that he introduces, some people saying, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paulus. Obviously, some are saying, I follow Paul, and others trust Christ, but we all know that Somebody can claim to be just following Christ and wind up being divisive as well. That sort of sets the tone for many, if perhaps not all of the problems in the book, so that what he starts doing in uh, 118 and following, at least to the end of chapter four, is giving uh, a series of antidotes. How do you uh, avoid the factions and the factionalism? And the very first one of those that is introduced right there towards the end of chapter one is focusing on the cross. I don't know if anybody knows who first coined the slogan that to the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. But that really is, I think, what he's driving at here. The more we focus on Jesus and the more we focus on a crucified Jesus, not just on Good Friday, then uh, the harder it is going to be for us to uh, fight one another. You mentioned the uh, divisions, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Jumping way ahead to application or at least thinking about that, mm -hmm. are we in danger of the same thing when we have our favorite pastor, commentator, Bible teacher, you know, I'm not going to use names, but we could sure. come up with a short list and say, I'm of this pastor, I'm of that pastor, I'm of this so yeah. how do we help our folks think beyond just because, you know, Pastor Bill says this and Pastor Fred says that, that we're trying not to divide the body of Christ? Well, simply bringing up the example as you have, I think the average person who's aware of anything about the history of recent Christianity will will think of denominations and at least in our lifetime, you and I are about the same age, it strikes me that that we've made some substantial headway in toning down some of the division between Presbyterians and Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and so on. But at times, and of course the the movement that from one point of view was designed to do away with all those divisions was the non-denominational or the interdenominational church. But as you've said, we sometimes create a non-denominational denomination. Right. And it may be a network of churches that are akin to a particular flagship church. It may be a network of churches and leaders or people who simply admire a leader with a national or international ministry and audience. 
And all you need to do is say, well, so-and-so says, and for some people, well, that just settles the question. Right, right. They don't have to think the issue through for themselves. Well, and I get this even in my small sphere of people think, you know, what does Michael think? What does Michael say? And, <laughs> you know, there's certainly a respect we have towards some of these pastors and scholars. I'm not trying to minimize that, but I'm just more at the juncture of even in our social ills right now with, you know, the racial tensions, the political tensions. It's so interesting to watch Christians align with particular pastors or Christian voices as opposed to saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, you know, what about my sphere of influence and how do I live as a faithful believer? Because my context is very different, more than likely, than that man or woman who's making those statements. That's right. And it's struck me as I've been preparing again to teach First Corinthians at the seminary this semester, that even if the parallels at times are not as religious, just dividing ourselves along political party lines and in Christian circles, sometimes claiming that somehow if you're a good Christian, you have to align with a certain party or the other, really involves the same dynamics. And if you're looking for something that causes the spirit of division and strife and anger, my goodness, I can't think of anything worse in our culture today. Well, in my 40 years of being part of a church and any, you know, either attending or leading, it sure seems that way. But I remind our folks, this is not the Civil War. You know, it's a it could become that, God forbid. Yeah, but uh, hope not. Yeah. Well, let's go back to our chapter and book. In chapter two, I have always been struck, Craig, by his, I love this natural man, spiritual man mm. appraisal. I've given my thoughts many times on this broadcast and in pulpits, but I'd love to hear your observations, especially on this section, chapter 2, verses 10 to the end of the chapter? Well, again, this is a passage that different commentators have taken in different ways, particularly because once you start in chapter 3, it is very clear that Paul is talking about two kinds of Christians. And so he contrasts the spiritual Christian with what King James Version once upon a time called the carnal Christian. And modern translations will say something like worldly or, or fleshly. But I don't think he is doing that yet in chapter 2. It seems that the contrast there, and I had to chuckle because in your introduction, the one translation work that I've done that actually I've been involved with for the past 12 years is to be on the NIV Committee for Bible Translation. And so that kind of overshadows the other three ones I did early on. But in 14, 15, and 16, uh, starting in 2.14, the person without the spirit is how what older translations sometimes called the natural, natural man. man. Uh -huh. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit. And then in verse 15, the spiritual person is rendered as the person with the spirit so here, the contrast really is, unless you're a believer, you can't really even begin to know the mind of God, the things of God. Not that believers ever have exhaustive knowledge or insight into that, but there are clear limitations that unless the Spirit has come in and begun a work of regeneration in a person, you can't expect them to have the same kind of insights that believers have. 
course, then in chapter three, it goes on to say, but not all believers automatically have that. And that then lands us into some of the, the same divisions that uh, we started with in chapter one. I've used, and I may be wrong here, but I've used those verses to, I'm sure you're familiar with Umberto Casuto, who wrote one of the finest commentaries on the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Yeah. And he's an Italian rabbi that believed it was all myth. And, and <laughs> yeah. without equal, his Hebrew exegesis is, I mean, it stands apart. And I say, you know, if you don't have Christ's spirit in you, you can't, I use the expression, you can't ascribe value to what you're reading. So it may be a good piece of literature, maybe a phenomenal piece of literature, but it's not the very word of God. And he who is spiritual and, can put value to it. And to push that even one step further, you can take somebody like an Amy Jill Levine, who is a Jewish New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt University. I recently finished reading her little booklet on the Sermon on the Mount, and she ascribes a lot of value to the sermon, but she doesn't ascribe ultimate value. She doesn't say that it is God's word as she would take what we call the Old Testament to be. Um, And so, yes, exactly. There are non-Christian scholars who know what the text says and means better (laughs) than some Christians. Oh, no doubt. Maybe at times better than many Christians, but they're not responding in the fullest and most desirable way by becoming followers of Jesus. I had a pastor when I was a young Christian in uh, Houston, Texas. It was a church named Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church, uh, Dr. <laughs> Bob Tolson. Yeah, there's a story behind that name. And uh, he was teaching through First Corinthians, and I remember him reading chapter 3, verse 1. Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. And he stopped and he said, do you realize you're reading a bowl of milk? (laughs) And I never forgot it. These are like the basic issues they were dealing with were pablum and they had not grown in their faith. He goes, I gave you milk to drink. You're not, you're not able to receive it even now. Right. So then we read this and we're on our heels because we're going to get into some pretty thick issues in Corinthians that Christians still debate. Absolutely. You keep on going in that same chapter, and you've got the encouraging comparison between different believers who are building in various ways, some much better on the foundation, which is Christ. But then you've got people, apparently, at least some of them within the church in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple which is the community of believers, as he's just defined it, God will destroy that person Mm -hmm. for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. I was just reading this morning, Paul Gardner's commentary in the Zondervan exegetical series. And his point is to say that there can be people in our midst who are so persistently divisive and seemingly devoid of any redemptive virtues that we would expect of a Christian, that at some point we have to say, this can't be a Christian doing this. And not to harp on a depressing topic, but some of these violent extremists in our society, I mean, for years, the Ku Klux Klan claimed to be explicitly Christian. And it's just downright scary when you get people at 
ends like that, that all they're trying to do is tear something down, mm-hmm. and yet they get identified with the church. Yeah. Yeah, the church in the West is a deep well of, uh, <laughs> of frustration and sadness, and that's you know it's why you and I are still trying to teach the Bible. Hopefully, um, <laughs> yeah. So let's continue his argument. So now we've gone from this, you know, you're dealing with childish things. You're not yet able to mature. You're still fleshly. You're jealous, and he does dip back to the original comment about Apollos and Cephas and their alignment. By the end of chapter three. Uh, with this temple of God, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise, he must become foolish. We have a lot of these tensions in Pauline theology where it goes back and forth. You know, if you're going to boast, don't boast in yourself, boast in the Lord. Here he says, if you're wise, you need to be a fool. Give us some of Paul's thinking and how that played in the first century. Well, simply because chapter divisions aren't always the the best places to put breaks. In the most immediate context, I think we need to read at least through chapter 4, verse 5. And there it becomes very clear, despite all that Paul has been entrusted with and this incredible honor of being an apostle, he says, we're just servants. We're just stewards. We've been entrusted with a lot, but we're still simply under God. He's our leader. And that's why so many human processes of evaluating what's going on are flawed and he wants to wait and trust God on judgment day who will judge everything completely fairly. So how do we become wise fools, (laughs) wise in God's eyes, but fools in the world's Mm -hmm, eyes, mm -hmm. a whole lot of humility and just servant leadership, I think is the short answer. You know, I, I remember reading, I think it was Ends in his um, book on Exodus, mm, which yeah. became a little bit of controversy. But he made an opening statement in his preface. I've never forgotten that he said that the problem of taking a passage and turning it into a principle, we are in danger of making a new law. Of a, it's always true. Of a do and a don't. Yeah. And I, but again, it was years ago I read it and I was a young pastor going, that's really insightful. So when I read Pauline, my tendency, maybe not yours, but mine is often to go, okay, Mike, you need to be more this way and not be that way. You need to, he even says in verse six, don't become arrogant. Okay, Michael, don't become arrogant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but it's like the little engine that could. I can't manifest that, which is part of his correction. You can't align yourself with a teacher and say, well, what Apollo says is what I believe, and how we integrate this into our own spiritual life and say, Lord, I can't be a fool for Christ unless you help me. I can be a braggart. I can boast about this or that. Can you help us a little bit there with, you know, we're to be controlled by the Spirit of God. We have the ability to appraise things differently, yet we're not trying to reinvent a law. Right. Certainly, you started with Exodus. If you're talking about Ten Commandments, they are laws. <laughs> right. But with somebody like Paul, who is not personally an inerrant model like Jesus would have been, even if we believe he was inspired to produce inerrant scripture, when he simply says, I do this, I think of myself as such and such. Well, there's more than one place where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But that also means if he's not always fully successful at imitating Christ, then don't follow him in that way. 
So you're absolutely right. What does it mean to be a servant or a steward in a particular context? That's probably a very good model to follow. But uh, fleshing that out may look very different from one situation and one time to another. In chapter 5, he goes into a dicey chapter for us to read. (laughs) It's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And I'm thinking by today's terms, that's kind of mild, I hate to say. Uh, how do we, uh, yeah, how do we think through this then and in our current church settings today, Craig? Well, if there are a couple of verses that really jump out at me in chapter five and continue to do so every time I read them, it's verses nine and 10 and really 11 as well. You got to keep the three together. He talks about this letter. We don't know anything about it that he had previously written to the Corinthians. I should say the only thing we know about it is that at least part of it included this uh, warning not to associate with sexually immoral people. And apparently the Corinthians took that the way some Christians today take it, sadly. But okay, so don't be involved with non-Christians, or at least non-Christian sinners, well, then how would they ever come to see the love of Christ and maybe come to Jesus? So he clarifies that. He says, not at all, meaning the people of the world, verse 10, who are immoral, or the greedy or swindler, the idolaters, etc. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. (laughs) Well, I think some Christians try to do that. There's a couple of pretty funny YouTube videos that somebody made about the large church that provided alternate Christian opportunities for just about every activity anybody could ever want to do in life so that you'd never have to see a non-Christian again. <laughs> and that's not what Paul's getting at. He says, no, it's the people who are in the church, the people who claim the name of Jesus. And so often we berate the sins of the non-Christian world all around us. And I like to tell students, you know, we expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Is there something wrong with that? (laughs) But then, uh, especially if in Christian circles, problems come from a big power broker. I think the key to understanding all of five And Paul's astonishment that the Corinthians are not only tolerating, but seemingly taking pride maybe in their Christian freedom to tolerate this man living incestuously. About the only thing we know historically and culturally that could have led to that is that the man was a key power broker in the church. And scholars speak about the uh, practice of patronage. He was somebody in our modern language, we'd say he was the key donor. He was the wealthiest man. The church might not have been able to function without him. I know a local pastor who is retired now, who a number of years ago was embarked on a, an important building program, not a lavish one, but a significant one. And a man in his congregation offered to give him a multi-million dollar gift which would have, I think, covered more than half of the entire amount of money they were trying to raise, but with such specific strings attached Mm. that my friend simply had to say, I'm sorry, I can't accept that. 
And how many of us, <laughs> given the opportunity to receive such an offer, would follow suit? Right. Now, turn it into the world of sexual sin, and I'm sure we all know the the pastors and other leaders where it's not a borderline issue. It's not a debatable case. It's just out and out flagrant adultery, persistent, unrepentant, and there's no action taken. Well, if, we can... if, if I can inject, you know, we've got this theme of boasting he's been building. And when he comes to chapter five and talks about this immoral situation, he then says in verse six, your boasting is not good. In verse 18, prior chapter, he said, right. you become arrogant. So, you know, I hazard to tread into the LGBTQ plus categories, but we have, you know, churches that are embracing and loving and accepting. And I'm with you, you know, we're not out of the world in that sense. We are to love those that don't know the Lord. But when you have a person that is boasting and loud about, you know, Paul speaks to that in Romans as well, about their choices and preferences, you know, we're on our heels now, Craig. We don't know what to do. It's true. Yeah. It's such a tightrope act that we have to walk to. But isn't Paul saying, you know, this is wrong. It's not good. It's an immorality that should not exist. I mean, later in Timothy, he's going to talk about rebuking a factious man. There are times, you know, we're often accused of judging people. Well, I tell people every stop sign is a moral judgment. It says you <laughs> right. have to stop. When I said a tightrope, yeah. I didn't. I didn't mean in terms of taking action on leaders in such a situation, but rather that we do want to welcome people to our churches, but then not necessarily affirm everything that they're doing. Yeah, and that's yeah, that is a tightrope, and it's you know the I mean the separation movements of some churches that we could speak of. You already alluded to you know that to be apart from them, and they take that. You know, pejoratively to your YouTube illustration. I mean, it is a tightrope in the sense that I guess I just remind myself of the algorithm of as long as I can have a conversation with this person, that they know where I stand, that I love them, but I'm not endorsing their sin, I'm glad to be their friend. Right. But when it crosses that bridge of they're angry with me or they're furious with me or they think I, you know, I'm wrong and I, well, I'm glad to be wrong. I just think the text is pretty clear. And I have a hard time. But again, our our churches have so caved to this. And one of the, at least in my experience, and that's anecdotal, is the word embracing. You yeah. know, let's embrace this culture. And I want to say, well, how far is that embracing going to go? You're going to embrace pedophiles. You're going to embrace yeah. rapists. Yeah. You're going to embrace men who have wives in separate states. I mean, what do you do here? And Paul is, there's no gray in this chapter. <laughs> uh, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's right. I need to work as hard as I can to, in a personal way, be as loving as I can with people whose lifestyles differ from mine. But if that becomes a point where they say, you can't be my friend, you can't be nice to me unless you accept well, it, it's it's and moved to mix. It's moved from acceptance to endorse. To endorsing. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It, it yeah. used to then, be accept. Now it's you got to endorse what that's, I that's want. That's a line we can't cross. You're yeah, absolutely yeah. right. You're and absolutely it takes right. courage, 
And then, exactly. interestingly, chapter six, it's about litigation. <laughs> you know, that I remember reading as a young Christian, as a teenager, for the first time, not growing up in an evangelical church and thinking, my goodness, there is a chapter in the Bible on lawsuits. I would <laughs> never have guessed that from the church people I knew growing up with who sued one another right or left. But of course, I was brought up in a liberal church, so that didn't happen in conservative circles. Well, I discovered I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you learned but it really early. was a shock to my teenage Bible reading experience. This isn't the Bible. Well, why have I never seen anybody following it? Wow. Our uh, friend, perhaps you know Ken Sandy, has worked so yes. hard to try to keep you know litigation from the local church, and uh, I think a lot of good's been done in that. But my point is, I don't know that there was continuity in Paul's thinking that, you know, this immorality and calling it out was going to lead to litigation. <laughs> that was my juncture was, you know, today it well could lead litigation. If you take a stand religious, right. you know, it could mean, which goes back to your multi-million dollar gift. Are you willing to go to jail for what you believe? You know, we're, we're uh, watching that unfold in some States right now. Uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned Ken Sandy because what strikes me about chapter six particularly, is that Paul is not saying don't try to redress genuine injustice. Right. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, surely there's got to be somebody in the church to help you do that, that you don't have to go to the, in the Roman Empire, it would have been the Gentile and the pagan law courts. Well, yep. it's probably still, in many cases, a pagan law court. He doesn't want the church's dirty laundry to be aired before the watching world that will gleefully jump on that and point out the hypocrisy of it all. But he's not saying if you've got genuine injustice, don't try to deal with it. Just deal with it in-house. You know, it's interesting, and you probably, like me, as long as we've been at this, we've seen irreconcilable disputes and uh Generally, it's not doctrinal, it's personality or it's, you know, style yep. or whatever. And, uh, you know, my comment has been, you know, I can disagree with the process. I can disagree with the opinion, but I have to submit. I may not like it and I may have to leave, but I'm not yep. going to vilify that person. I'm going to, in God's kindness, work to forgive them. And I find it interesting when he says, even in verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You know, you think you've been defeated and defrauded, but in fact, you're the one who's been wrong uh -huh. and defraud, even your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous, and that we have to pause on the inheritance? But I just find it so interesting that I tell our folks all the time personality and human behavior have not changed from antiquity till today. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about I'm inheritance. for technological changes yeah. that human nature yeah. hasn't changed. There you go. That's a better way of saying it. Talk to me about inheritance. Kleronomias, klerao, klerao. This is a very interesting part of Paul's teaching. I think somewhat uniquely in the New Testament, he talks about the inheritance, inheriting the kingdom of God. And I know there are a number of interpretation of that. I love Dr. Blomberg to give me the definitive answer to what inherit the kingdom of God <laughs> means here. Well, in keeping with what we've been saying, I 
shouldn't pretend that I have the definitive interpretation. <laughs> but uh, what you put it in a book, I already know that. So. <laughs> yes, it's very interesting how you write something down and suddenly <laughs> it carries more weight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially if it comes in a cloth hardcovered book, it's a lot more weight. Ah, yes. The whole area of adoption, which a lot of people don't automatically relate to this, is a fascinating one because ancient Romans didn't adopt people for all the reasons that we think of. They basically adopted someone to have a legal heir to pass their estate, especially if it was a sizable one to pass their estate onto. And so when we see language in Paul or elsewhere in the New Testament that talks about heirs, it talks about inheriting, it talks about one's inheritance, I think we should be immediately drawn to the reminder that everything that is God's one day will be ours as adopted sons and daughters of Christ to enjoy mm -hmm. in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And if that ultimate destiny, or for those who don't inherit it, being completely apart from God and all things good, if those two options were on our minds more, I think we'd make decisions in ordinary life and in the church a whole lot better. I couldn't agree more. And I want to come back to this precise passage because he's outlined this uncomfortable passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit right. the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, thieves, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Mm -hmm. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So is this eternal salvation? Is this reward? Is this something else? I think it has to be eternal salvation. But anticipating the objection to that, obviously, there's quite a mixed bag of people who are mentioned who will not inherit the kingdom of God including the greedy, and we may sometimes do a whole lot better pointing out the sexual sins of our society than the financial ones, <laughs> or in ourselves, so that clearly in order to make every category of person mentioned in verses 9 and 10 fit into his sentence, we are not talking about people who have one-time flagrant breaches of good conduct. We are not talking about people who have ongoing struggles, but are genuinely struggling to overcome something. We're talking about people, and it's very interesting, but what you have here are a series of nouns. If these were verbs, mm. those people who do such and such, we'd be toast. Um, we'd say, how much do they do it? Right. But when you do something so often that it becomes characteristic, you work at banking every day, so you become called a banker. <laughs> then at a point known only to God, and hallelujah, we can't determine and we aren't 
called to determine. There are people who are so characterized by some of these things. And to go back to what we said earlier, perhaps even boasting about it, there's not a hint or a sign that they are in any way struggling with or even knowing that the issue is a problem. God says, yep, you've crossed the line. You're not part of our family. I'm sorry. I often say, I remember years ago, I was in Dallas and I heard a internationally renowned Bible teacher commentator being interviewed on a book that he had just released. And of course, this was prior to what we knew was AIDS and uh, uh, HIV and so forth. And there was a common nomenclature of this is God's judgment on yeah. the gay community. And this particular author, pastor, leader took that view. And the radio interviewer, to his credit, said, so if so-and-so was in the hospital dying or ill with this disease, what would you say to him? Uh-huh. And this author you know, basically said, if you, you know, don't stop this behavior, you're not a Christian. And I remember listening to that and going, you know, when Jesus did the, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I always go back to the one because it resonates with men. If you commit adultery, I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And I go, Christ didn't ameliorate the law. He turned the heat up on it. He goes, if you think that way, you've committed adultery. And so my response, and again, push back and clarify, help me. (laughs) My response has always been, I don't know, but there's only two options, humanly speaking. They're a believer ensconced in sin, or they never truly trusted Christ. Right. And it's not my place to judge them. It's my place to lovingly say, Christ compels all of us to move away from our sins. And I can't do that in the flesh. I can't make my flesh better. But by Christ's spirit, by submission, by God's word, God's spirit, God's people, I can get on a narrower path. I don't have to live addicted to pornography. I don't have to live with a sexual identity that's countered the scripture. I don't have to live as a thief or a covetous person. And if somebody's dying of AIDS or whatever the context was, my goodness, it's almost impossible that they don't realize the temporal consequences of what they've done. It's time to say, there's still hope for you. You can still come to Jesus. We don't have to be discussing how bad what they did was, but try to bring them some hope and maybe there'll be a deathbed conversion. Let's go to, again, I love the more I study Paul, and of course, you're far more the scholar than I am, but his writing and logic. Every time I go through this stuff, Craig, it just sets me on my heels. The guy was brilliant. And (laughs) so he moves from this rather, you know, unsavory text to not all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And it's like a breath of air, you know, wow. Okay. This is helpful. We've got these pericopes, if you will, 13 is 14 against God, 15, 17 against Christ. 18 to 20 against Holy Spirit. I love the Trinitarian development he does there. That's actually a point I'm not sure I've noticed before. That's excellent. Certainly when we get into the chapter on spiritual gifts, he will have, uh, in 12, he will have an explicitly Trinitarian folk. Yeah, yeah, I got to remember that. Well, you don't even have to give me credit. (laughs) But (laughs) I I just love the way it unfolds. 
because, you know, these are against God, these are against Christ, these are against the Spirit. And then he connects it, again, if I'm right in my observations, in 12 to 20, it jumps all the way into chapter 7. Now concerning things which I wrote, right. which, of course, you referenced already to the letter perhaps we don't know. And a letter that they sent to Paul that we also don't know about. Right. Um, now, because, just, yeah. just sidebar, do you think there were four letters to Corinth or three? Two Corinths. I was in the impression three, and prevailing winds, I've read a number of commentators lately that seem to think there was a fourth letter. Well, the only way to decide about that is to go into Second Corinthians and see the places where Paul talks about a letter that caused much sorrow, right, and right. so people— is that strong language simply referring to First Corinthians, or is it okay. referring to something in between First and Second? But here in seven one, he's flipping from something that he wrote to Corinth, and he's saying, "Now for the matters you wrote about." So even before First Corinthians, it seems there were two letters, but one was from Paul to Corinth, and the other was from Corinth to Paul. Right. Right. So give us a summary, give us to Dr. Blumberg, synthetic observations about marriage in chapter 7. I am extremely impressed with what I think Gordon Fee first really emphasized in his commentary to make sense of this whole chapter. And now in some of our most recent translations, it's reflected by putting the second half of verse 1 in quotation marks. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, is how the current NIV puts it. But the point is, no, this is not Paul all by himself saying, you ought to be celibate. You should never marry. Although there are places in the chapter where it sort of sounds like he might be. But then how could he have ever written uh, Ephesians 5 and right. all of the beautiful statements about marriage? So I think the key to chapter 7 is to realize there were people in Corinth, much as we might find it astonishing in our culture today, we know from 2nd and 3rd and 4th and 5th century documents that this trend continued. There were people saying the highest Christian ideal is a life of complete celibacy. And uh, that attitude led to uh, what became the Roman Catholic approach to the priesthood, mm -hmm. that priests mm -hmm. should be celibate. And Paul, who at this moment when he's writing, is not married. Is he possibly a widower? I think he might be, but we don't know for sure. At this moment, he is very content with living a single life. And so he can say things like, Later on, I wish all people were, were like I am, but he realizes this is not the way God gifts everyone. So for me, the key to chapter seven is that each little bit along the way, he is reflecting on people who were saying, if you're married, get out of it. If you're married but don't want to get out of it, just live celibately. If you're thinking about marriage, you don't need to go through with it one issue after another, and he is saying, hold on a minute. There are limited times and places for that attitude, but you cannot make that the absolute. You can't make that the norm, the 
sweeping generalization. There are all kinds of good reasons for marriage. Mm -hmm. And with that overarching approach, I think each part of the chapter falls into place. I love his uh, continuity, remain, remain, remain. How many is it? Five, six times? Remain, remain. And the principle seems to sum it up in 20, each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. And again, correct me, please, if I'm wrong, but so you have people in Corinth who are coming to Christ and they are married to an unbeliever now and prevailing winds would say, you don't have to stay with them. And he goes, no, you stay in the game because uh, you don't know how that might work out. That's right. And the more he emphasizes remain throughout verses 17 to 24, the more the one exception stands out in the second half of verse 21, where were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Right. And in a world that still is filled with slavery, except that we tend to call it human trafficking, Gaining your freedom is crucial if there's any way possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I pejoratively comment about when he says, you know, you will have trouble in this life and I'm trying to spare you. <laughs> and I say, well, you know, there may not be marital trouble. There will be trouble. <laughs> yes, that's right. Everybody I'm going to spare you a little bit. Maybe you want to have marriage trouble, but you'll have other trouble. Let's go to chapter eight just for time and, and moving along here. Again, we have this continuity of boasting and arrogance and you know concerning being sacrificed to idols and this is another one where his writing to me is so brilliant because he's going to play back and forth on knowledge and what we know we know that we have all knowledge knowledge makes arrogant which i often wonder is that tongue-in-cheek but love edifies if anyone supposes he knows anything he is not yet known as he ought to know (laughs) You wonder if you'd have heard this guy in perfect contextual, you know, we lived in that time and culture and we understood the rhetoric. I think a lot of this, we'd be just dazzled and laughing at how brilliant and clever he was as a writer. Absolutely. We didn't comment on it earlier, but the text beginning in chapter four, verse eight, where he says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You you reign like kings and that without us. And you go, really? Is he being serious? No, no, because you keep on reading. He's dripping with irony because he says, how I wish you really did reign. Um, this, this is your attitude. And I think that works perfectly here in chapter eight as well. What you are calling knowledge. And again, many modern translations will take that last part. We know that, quote, we all possess knowledge, close quote. Right. Yeah, you're talking about your great knowledge. And now it's being applied to uh, a morally gray area where he will end his three chapters on the topic by saying, eat anything you want that's sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. Mm -hmm. But he also knows that there are people whose conscience does trouble them and never wants us to encourage others, even by example, to lead someone to violate their own conscience. Maybe I'm jumping the gun by saying this, but what really stands out to me out of chapter eight is this 
whole concept of the weaker brother or sister, which so often has been applied across the board to anyone who might be offended by something I do or say. Yeah. Let's go to that. We don't want to go out of our way to cause offense, but that's not what the weaker brother or sister is. It's somebody who would actually be led into violating their conscience or worse, doing something sinful, not just somebody who thinks uh, the youth group shouldn't do something creative that's controversial. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I don't know how many times over the years I've gone, there's there's two different things. There's an offense and there's stumbling. And the offended brother, really, it's on him. So if you know you go out to dinner and you see somebody with a glass of wine, you may think, "Oh, that person," and you may go crazy. That's your problem. But if, That's right. <laughs> but if but if you take that and say, "Oh, you know, Doctor Blumberg drinks. Oh, I can drink and get drunk. Now we've got an issue." And absolutely. And in practicality, I wonder percentage-wise, we've done a whole lot more offending than we've done cause to stumble. <laughs> I think you're right. I do think you're right. Yeah. Perhaps that fails in some sectors of sin, but again, uh, there's so much more we could talk about, but I want to keep moving. Liberty, goodness, you know, I I use a pendulum illustration that may not be the best, but I go on one side is licentiousness, liberty's at the bottom, and Mm -hmm. legalism's on the other side. And the only time Michael's in liberty is when he's going from one extreme to the other. (laughs) (laughs) And it's probably brief at best, but... This whole topic of liberty, let me quit talking. Give me your insights on uh, what he's saying here, because there's so much in this chapter about what he's free to do and yet what he doesn't do. I'm happy to keep listening to you because I just (laughs) want to say amen and amen. Um, I was going to build on the pendulum swing uh, and say, hopefully at some point, if it's a battery run clock, that. battery runs down so that uh, (laughs) the extremes aren't as far and you hang around in that middle a little bit longer. Um, I like that. Yeah. I'll have to add that to my, (laughs) yeah. Maybe that's as we get older. (laughs) It may be, it may be. The mind is willing, but the body's unable. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Again, give me some of your insights on his whole liberty and his steward. I love the stewardship and trusted to me phrase. Well, Again, at the risk of getting ahead of the game, because just when you think he's on another topic about accepting money for ministry in chapter 9, then you get to 10, and he's right back to the whole issue of idle food again. I think he comes, if I can go all the way to 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I hear that a lot. I agree with it. I'm not always sure what that looks like. So I keep reading, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, people who are Christians, even as I try to please everyone in every way, Mm. which has to be alluding back to the wonderful passage in the middle of chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, where he tries to become all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. And of course, that doesn't mean that he does that which is inherently immoral. Right. He doesn't become a prostitute to win the prostitutes. But you mentioned the example of wine drinking, uh, sort of a classic one that Christians talk about. 
There's so many others. And when you talk to millennials, there are ones that we almost never think about. What about online games of different kinds, which can become addictive, which can become destructive to oneself or to others, or they can be like my own uh, son-in-law and daughter love to play, just fun passing the time. And as far as I can tell, never use it inappropriately. Mm -hmm. And that's the balance that is so hard to get because whenever there is a new activity or trend or form of dress or color of hair or bodily adornment, to mention some other things that are, are more recent than drinking, there are some people who just almost as a knee-jerk reaction reject it and reject it in the name of Christ. And then perhaps as an overreaction to that, there are others who say, oh, get real. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this. There never could be. And somewhere in between, we have to say, what is it that could actually be sinful or destructive or harmful to oneself or to another? And what are ways that this can be a wonderful way for people to enjoy time of fellowship with each other? Mm. Sometimes it's only one or the other, but so many times it can be one or it can be the other. And, and we have to help people understand that and figure out where boundaries should be. In a key passage in chapter 10 that I would say a lot of Christians know pretty well, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such yeah. as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Give me your interpretation, thoughts. Well, maybe it's because it's such a long verse. <laughs> I'm not sure we always make it to the last clause <laughs> so that you can endure it. endure it. The way out of temptation or trial or testing, several ways you can translate and apply that, is not always escaping from the context or the situation or the trial or the temptation. But God gives us, if we choose to avail ourselves of it, a way to bear up under it. I've recently been involved with helping some folks come to grips with the, the new Passion Translation, which has some, it's really a paraphrase and it has some beautiful things, but it has some serious problems as well. And one of the things coming out of one branch of the charismatic movement that it does with this verse is just to rearrange hmm. the order of the clauses so that the whole thing ends with God's going to provide the way of escape and lead everybody thinking you're going to get out of the tough times and the, the troubling situation. And I wish that were true too, but, but I've lived and he doesn't always but he does promise that there is a way to live a faithful, God-honoring life in every context that we find ourselves in. I find it striking. No temptation is irresistible, but I often tell our folks to be uh, students of your sin, meaning you know, pay attention to the temptation. Pay attention to, you know, are you tired? Are, you know, the old uh, AA thing, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, you know, halt. There's probably a 
time of day, a emotional drain, something, and to tell yourself, wait, no temptation is irresistible is a novel thought. Very true. I think of the times I lose it and go into uh, <laughs> what some passage, I think, somewhere translates fits of rage. <laughs> right. And it's when people I know and love and care about and who should know better get off on the conspiracy theory. And yeah, the election really was stolen. And I go, come on. We've looked into that from every conceivable angle. <laughs> yeah. What's my trigger point? I don't have anything. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad there's one perfect person in the world. No, and I'm perfect. No, I am the trigger. <laughs> That's my challenge. We get into chapter 10, and I love how we use chapter 10 and 11 for the Lord's Supper. We uh, have this mm. wonderful section. Uh, yes. He begins with the cup of blessing, the sharing of blood the sharing of the bread, the body of Christ, and then we come all the way, jumping way ahead into chapter 11, where we, many churches will read verses 23 and following yes. as they uh, participate, thoughts, observations. We probably ought to start at least with verse 20 or maybe 21. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. This was the original church potluck meal. Mm -hmm. The more well-to-do people probably brought more, began eating earlier because they didn't have to work such long hours. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk, which in passing is the uh, foolproof text to show that they actually did use fermented wine. Um, <laughs> yes, it must have been real, right? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So once we see that the context is not adequately caring for the poorest members of the congregation, then when we come down and read the more famous words, whoever drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, verse 27, or those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ in 29, we have to keep it in that context. It's about the people who flagrantly disregard poor fellow believers right in their immediate context. Those are the ones who ought to refrain from partaking. Mm. Not the people who just feel, I'm not close to God these days. I'm not worthy of this. It's not about who is worthy. It's about who is partaking. It's an adverb in mm -hmm. an unworthy manner. Unworthily is the one Greek word. And of course, there are a lot of churches that will have something like a deacon's fund or a special offering, particularly if communion is is not every week, but maybe once a month or even less frequent. And they picked up on this, and that's an offering for the poor. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty that don't, and I think that's a key point that we need to recover. Yeah, I was affiliated with a church in uh, Virginia for many years, and they had a beautiful tradition of that. And they always took you know, and made a point of it. You read that passage and say, well, we're going to set something aside for, we had a benevolent fund that was quite impressive right. and it was born out of that very passage. So, Fantastic.
the use of gifts, of course, this is a big, big topic, but one of the things I emphasize, and again, I love your observations, you're the scholar on this, but we have the Trinitarian development, as we've alluded to in 4, 5, and right. 6, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. But I think verse 7 is the one, at least in my opinion, Craig, that's often overlooked, yes. that each one was given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Is that an overarching principle for what follows? I don't know if it is the overarching, but it might be. But, it certainly is an overarching principle, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a nice, short, single, independent clause verse, but it really does have two parts. Everybody has some kind of gift, whether they realize it or not. There's nobody we can dismiss who's a fellow believer and say, you don't matter. God hasn't gifted you with anything. And then as people do their best to identify and use their gifts, the little prepositional phrase at the end is so crucial for the common good. It's not about building your own kingdom, your own reputation, your own status. It's certainly not about dividing the church as we're reflecting on where we started in the early chapters. It's about building one another up. And you get that language in Ephesians 4 as well mm -hmm. for the edification of the church right after Paul in uh, 4, 11, and 12 lists sample gifts there. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier, too, and I, I love the way he does it here. He's talking about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the same Spirit, one Spirit, one Spirit. And then when you come to verse 12, he shifts to the body, the body, the body, the body, the body. He interjects the Spirit, but I think Oh, gosh, I'd have to count them up, but probably a dozen times, verses 12 down to 20, his focus is on the body. And I've always found that interesting that these are spiritual gifts, but there is an implementation as how the body parallels these. Help me out. Yeah, body's got lots of parts. <laughs> <laughs> and whoever said parts is parts, I don't know what that originally meant, but... <laughs> If it means they're all the same, then that, no, that's not what Paul's saying. Parts can be very different. And there are people who get so excited about the way the Lord has gifted them that they insist on trying to make everybody else into their own image when he may not have gifted other people in the same way. But he has gifted them. And so we're all different. We need to, at one level, very much glory in our differences. I like to say that it's bad enough there's one Craig Blomberg in the world. You wouldn't want two. That, that'd be horrible. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I but could. then that diversity cannot be allowed to divide. Mm. It's for the sake of building up. If, my, uh, if I have an ingrown toenail, my whole body <laughs> suffers. Is aware of it. Um, yep. And you go, how is that possible from that tiny little part? because it matters, because it makes a difference. Mm. Then, of course, the other part of his metaphor, though he doesn't use it with a toenail, is what would the body be if it were all a toenail? <laughs> Wouldn't be able to do very much, right. so we need all that diversity. <laughs> we can't not talk about his teaching on the resurrection, the clarity of the gospel. So what would you advise, what would you like to cover, to be sure we cover in just a few minutes, because I want to respect your time. Just to quote now deceased friend and former pastor who's with the Lord, 
who in a ministry to indigenous Brazilians in the upper Amazon basin created a, a ministry called Amor, the Portuguese and also Spanish word for love. And based on chapter 13, I don't know of any uninspired definition of love that does anything better than this. He talked about love is the unsolicited giving of the very best I have on behalf of another, regardless of response. Mm. And this was a man who exemplified it in his life. No inconsistency there. Resurrection, chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, maybe strike me. Everything strikes me, but I remember, uh, you and I are old enough to remember a guy by the name of Andre Crouch, who was an African-American Christian singer, and he had a group, and he popularized a song that had as its chorus, if heaven never were offered to me, would I still serve my Lord? And I remember listening to that. I once heard his group live in Davenport, Iowa, thinking, yeah, I get the point. There's so much good that can come from my life right now in this world, even if there was no afterlife. But then I kept coming back to 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, we're of all people most miserable. Mm. And I wonder, what are we trying to do as well-to-do American Christians? We're trying to have the best of this life. And as long as it doesn't get challenged, then we're happy to put a veneer of Jesus on top of that. But is that genuine Christianity? Or if we were told, when you die, that's all there is, Mm. would we keep living the Christian life? I think Paul's answer is, he faced so much persecution and suffering for that, no way. I think he would have immediately become an Epicurean. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Well, we're eating, drinking, and being merry already because we think we got our fire insurance, but there's something askew there. Uh, Yeah, it's a good word. I I love the verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless. I heard a man many years ago who also was on the mission field give a message on Job, and his opening question was, will you serve God for nothing? And same kind of thought, you know, if you get nothing in this life but the hope of the promise of eternal life with him, would you still serve him for nothing in this life? That's the way to ask the question, yeah. Wow, you know, it puts you on your heels. Um, And you go a few more verses, and Christ has been raised, and so it's the first fruits of the resurrection for all those who die in him and what an amazing mm. privilege. As I get older, I watch more of my friends and relatives yep. pass away. And those who have hope, it makes all the difference for yep. them. Yep. I hope I've still got a while to go, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was just teaching uh, on Paul's comment about to die is gain, but to live on the flesh is for your benefit. Yeah. I think, you know, I think you do have to be a bit older to say those words, but you understand (laughs) it. Well, when you start losing all your friends and mentors, and if you lose a spouse and it's not to be uh, morbid, I have this expression I do. I take my fists and I make a swinging motion. I go another cheery Michael Easley sermon, you know, (laughs) Uh, but I'm reminding them, look, this life at best is a clean bus station. And, 
we're preparing for another life, and praise God, it's going to blow our minds. There's nothing yes. like this life. You know, that should be something we long for. But, but again, it's the Epicurean. That's a great way of, you know, if you don't believe this, you may as well, right? That's, I'm still waiting for the bumper sticker that says, life is hard, and then you die, and then it can get crazy good. <laughs> well, maybe you should make one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Let me land on this, because I love this verse. I've preached it as a standalone sermon in chapter 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. There is a college in Cambridge, Selwyn College, part of the university, that has over its archway the all capitals in Greek going back to when every good college student had to study Latin and Greek. And it has the portion that you read, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, some uh, be strong in understanding, be men. One of the uh, older translations say, be adult mm-hmm. is what they were mm-hmm. saying. That's a beautiful summary. It is. And that's why I go back to Paul's eloquence, brilliance, the way God used him. And, of course, we're a culture of sound bites and, uh, you know, very short clips on everything. So this one, to me, seems to be poignant. Give us a final word, Dr. Blomberg, as you look at 1 Corinthians, some takeaways for yourself, perhaps, and for us. Well, in light of what you just said, my apologies to anybody who's listened to this for so long. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, that, that, we, uh, that we kept you so long. We started with the idea that too much of this, that a whole lot of it can be unified by the theme of compromise with culture. And for Christians who think about that, we tend to go back a generation. We maybe go, for those of us who are baby boomers, we go back to our young adult or even childhood years. We think about some of the foolish legalisms because people thought playing cards or drinking or whatever was compromising with culture. But we need to be asking ourselves, what does compromise with culture look like in the 21st century? And yes, crucial issues in the areas of human sexuality and reproduction, but it goes so much further than that. Where are we compromising? Because we really are after the good life and certainly a measure of wealth and say what you want. But boy, when it comes time to how much do we give away to the Lord's work, it's just a pathetic amount in light of the world's needs. So go out of your comfort zone in thinking about areas where we perhaps compromise with culture. Dr. Craig Blomberg, professor, distinguished professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary, a prolific author, thinker, and contributor to Christ Church. Thanks for your time, my friend. Blessings Thank you for on, having me. on your ministry, and uh, maybe we'll get you again on another program. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.